House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren, Mr. Joe Goldberg. How are you doing? I am here. I'm enjoying a day in the suburbs of Chicago where there's not a bit of snow on the ground yeah. in February. I'll take yeah. it. But you've been drinking already, so... Shh. Secrets. Secrets. <laughs> okay. Well, it's big day today. Oh, and also, you know, I don't forget everybody, I will be on Talk TV on Sky in the UK tomorrow at 12 Pacific time, uh, 8 London time. It's exciting about my Hannibal the Cannibal book because Richard Maudsley is now the longest person in history. I didn't know they had a record, but there's a world record for he's been in solitary confinement longer than anybody else ever. Wow. 16,400 days now. So, so the next yeah, time, I'm speechless for that one. Yeah, next time you're bored and, and, and tired and feeling lonely, just remember that. It could be <laughs> worse. Calendar. Yeah, could be worse. Well, anyway, now today, great book coming up, and we both listened to it because we're too old to read. Um, so now the book is called The Nazi Conspiracy, and, of course, it's by Brad Meltzer. So thanks for being here, Brad. Good to be here. I'm glad you're drinking. <laughs> well, I don't know. You get too much, I won't be able to say the right right, right thing here, you know. But Everybody so, has I, a hobby. Yeah. So let's start out with the book. Now, this is this is a great book. We both liked it a lot. So why did you write the book? Like, what was what was it behind it that made you go into this book and actually write it? So the book is called The Nazi Conspiracy. It's about a secret plot to kill FDR and Stalin and Churchill at the height of World War II. And the truth is, is it was a cool story, right? Like, that's just a cool story. It's a piece of history that most people have never heard. I certainly hadn't heard it. I found it in a you know, quick mention that was like half page, page long story and just was like, is this true? Is this internet nonsense? What is it? But, you know, the the fun of the story and the fun of any story to me is then Josh mentioned, I'm my co-author, we, we always have this moment where we ask the bigger question. So, and, and again, we, we did the first conspiracy about the secret plot to kill George Washington. We did the Lincoln conspiracy, the plot to kill Lincoln long before John Wilkes Booth, uh, the original plot to kill him at the beginning of his presidency. But, and even here, the Nazi conspiracy, each time we ask one question, which is, what, what, what are we really writing this for? Like, what's it really about? Not just the titillating part of like, oh, they're going to kill, you know, FDR and, Church, and Stalin and Churchill. And for us, it was, you know, looking around at the culture where we are right now. And when you see, Nazis marching in 20, you know, a couple of years ago in Charlottesville, when you see Kanye West shooting his mouth off, saying anti-Semitic things, we all wring our hands and we all go, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this is how, how could this possibly happen here in America? It feels like something that should be happening in you know, Europe back in the 40s or something. And then we looked and we saw that back in the beginning of World War II, there was a Nazi rally held in Madison Square Garden in the heart of New York City. 20,000 people gathering together and cheering, big giant banner of George Washington surrounded by swastikas. And the first speaker at the rally says, if George Washington were alive today, he'd be friends with Adolf Hitler. And why are we fighting Nazis in 2023? Because they never left. And that's why we're writing the book. Like, that's what Josh and I, the whole time we were writing, we were like, that, 
even though we may not say those words, like we studying history is not just interesting because cool old things are cool. Like it's interesting because it tells us and informs us about something where we are today, and we hopefully evolve and learn. And so, yeah, you have Kanye West shoot his mouth. That's nothing new. Back then, it was Charles Lindbergh and Henry Ford using their celebrity to be anti-Semitic. Um, and so, to me, the Civil War never ended. World War II never ended. When you beat the bad guys, you don't just go, oh, I'm going to be a good guy now. No, they're still there, and we're still fighting them. And so that, to me, is what, when we sat down with the book, we were like, we want that to permeate from the book. Look at that. Well, it certainly did. You know, I, I was one of those that was um, – lulled into a sense of uh, the worst wars are over, you know, after the uh, the 80s and stuff and we get into the 90s. For some reason, I thought, uh, you know, all this all this anti-Jewish uh, and all this stuff that's going on um, was gone. But, you know, the thing is, it never does go away. It just kind of it's how much attention and how much power they get. Um, it, but that sort of reminded me, you know, the whole the, the Nazi rally in New York reminds me of, I, I hate to say it, but like a Trump rally. Well, that's, you know, here's the thing is like, you know, everyone looks at history and sees whatever portion and mirror they want to see. But there is no question that there is a recipe for authoritarianism, right? The, there is there's a recipe and it takes, you know, Adolf Hitler back in World War Two. You know, we, we he basically identifies these white native born Germans and who are suffering economically. And then Hitler says those magic words. He says to those, those Germans, those people are responsible for your problems. Those people. And that's a code. And we know that that, of course, he means the Jewish people back then. But look through history. Sometimes it's the black community or the gay community, the immigrant community, pick your minority community. And it's over and over the same thing. It's what you see in Russia right now in the Ukraine, what Putin's doing. And like you said, I mean, the the Holocaust doesn't start with death camps. It starts with slogans and rallies and propaganda and book bans. And if that story sounds familiar to you, it should. Well, in your book, you've got Roosevelt and Churchill and Stalin, for better or for worse, you know, three strong leaders who rallied together for the common cause of just getting rid of fascism. So are there equivalent today? What's gonna, what does it take? What are the themes from the, your book that go to today that resonate in the how do you stop that? They went to war. Yeah, I mean, but even what you just said, right, it's not – we tell the story in World War II that – you know, we punched the Nazis in the jaw and we saved the day for democracy and, you know, America did the right thing and wasn't it great. And it's a great story, you know, like you said, you know, where it stood against fascism. It's a great story, but that, that that's just, it's, it's, we, we give that, we're given the highlight reel. No one in America wanted to fight Nazis. And we tell that story like we're the brave superheroes, but no one wanted to. World War One happened. We lost so many people fighting in that war. No one wanted to go to another fight in Europe. We were isolationists. We wanted no part there. And then what happened? Pearl Harbor happens, and we're pissed, right? And we're like, we're declaring war on those Japanese. They just bombed us here in America. And even then, no one wants to fight Nazis. We don't declare war against Germany. We just said we're going to take on the Japanese because they bombed us. Hitler is doing what he does. We're going to go after, the, after these Japanese. And the only reason we start fighting Nazis is because Adolf Hitler is a fool, Adolf Hitler miscalculates a few times greatly, you know, during the war. One is he, of course, thinks that the Soviet Union will 
fall quickly and won't fight, which of course they're going to fight to the death and they're never going to stop. And his other, one of his other great miscalculations is he, when he finds out what happens in Pearl Harbor, his own men tell him, listen, boss, lay low, lay low. You don't, you don't need to pick a fight with the United States. So let them fight with Japan. We'll fight with, you know, the, we'll fight uh, Europe and it'll be, you know, that, that's more evenly matched. And Hitler slapped his leg in delight, as you see in, when you read the Nazi conspiracy. And he's basically like, this is great. What an opportunity. Only a coward. You know, strong people don't wait to have de- war declared on him. Strong people declare war themselves. And he picks a fight with America, declares war on us first. And Winston Churchill remembers this quote about America that, that when it comes to America, America is like a giant um, like kettle. Like, and, and when you light a fire under it, there's no lack of power that it's going to produce. It is just going to keep producing power. And, and Winston Churchill is absolutely right. And I say all that simply to answer your question, which is, you know, how do we how do we do these things? I wish I could say, oh, you know, people just have enough where they do this. It's like it's when it's in their own self-interest and they realize how bad it gets is when we fight back sometimes. And and I think we have to understand that and tell the more complex story so that we can be better people. So we do look back and don't tell a story where we're just like, oh, we, we saved the world from fascism. Like, sure, we did. But. Wouldn't it have been better if we stopped the Holocaust from happening and entered earlier? Wouldn't it be better if we didn't, it didn't take all that for us to do the right thing? And, and I know it's complex stuff, right? I'm not saying, you know, rush into every skirmish that takes place outside the United States, but we have to, you know, I think be more informed uh, and in, in terms of, you know, telling these stories of history in a more complex way because we reduce Stalin and Churchill and FDR into these, you know, wonderful icons but Joseph Stalin is on the Allied side during World War II, but he doesn't start the war there. He's actually on the Nazi side. The only reason he switches sides is the Nazis invade the Soviet Union. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to get my ass kicked. I'm going to go be on the Allies now. He's not a good guy. But we, again, tell those stories of those three brave, brave men standing up for, against fascism. So to me, um, I, I think you got to, you know, I wish I could say it was so easy or, you know, but the reason we study World War II and we all love it is because it's one of the few times in history where everyone agrees the United States jumped in, they knew who the bad guys were, they did the right thing, they saved the day, and everyone agrees. When is the last time you could say that about the American government? Good answer. So if it leads me to ask, in the book, you have a lot of research, a lot of pieces. You've got Soviet-Russian pieces, you've got Britain, you got the U.S., you've got everybody else. How did you pick the pieces you needed to put together to make those themes relevant from then to today? What was your decision-making process? Yeah, and, you know, full credit to Josh Bench. He's, you know, my co-writer on this book. Is just, he's an award-winning documentarian and one of the best researchers I know. And, and when, we, when we did the Washington book and the Abraham Lincoln book, we, you know, we go to the National Archives, you go to the New York Historical Society, you know, places that are very obvious and have lots of great records. And for this book, we're trying to tell you the secrets of the Nazis as they're trying to kill FDR and Churchill and Stalin. We're trying to figure out what the Nazis were doing in their records. Of course, most many of them were destroyed. Um, if you're trying to find out what the Soviet Union was doing at that time secretly, uh, you know, you're, you're asking the KGB for their files. Guess who they don't want to give them to? So we had to hire people who speak Russian, people who speak German for our researchers, and we were on completely new ground here. And, it, it, you know, and, and, and I always think when it comes to kind of picking what the research and pulling it out, 
is it's like the Supreme Court definition of pornography, which is you know it when you see it. And when you have a good nugget, you just know it when you see it. I mean, the the nugget I remember we had is, um, just to paint the picture, it's 1943. The big three are meeting for the very first time in Tehran, Iran, of all places. Uh, And, you know, this is the moment they're going to look each other in the eye for the very first time, decide how they're going to take on the Nazis, decide on troop movements, on morale, on supplies. This is the moment. And FDR flies, you know, and takes a boat across the world. He's in Tehran. The motorcade is coming down the center of the city. And everyone is, of course, looking and waving to see the president. They want to see the president's moved across the globe to be here. And the president's waving back from the motorcade. But what no one knows is that's not the president in the motorcade. It's a Secret Service decoy. The real president, the real FDR, is across town on the other side of the city, ducked down and hiding in the back of a beat-up sedan because they're worried that Nazi assassins are about to murder him. Now, I just ruined Chapter 1 of the Nazi conspiracy <laughs> yeah. for you. Yeah, well done. Right? Good but but, but you, that's Chapter 1, so it's okay. Uh, but but the truth is, is you get that story and you're like, oh, there's our beginning. You just know it when you see it. Why was it so important that the three actually met in person? Is it more uh, a signal to the world that they were together? or uh, Because couldn't they have decided a lot? over telecommunications? Yeah, then they did. They did do that a lot. I mean, there were, you know, there was a famous meeting in Casablanca where, so to answer your first part, one, it does matter. Appearances did matter. You know, now when, when news comes out, whatever news comes out of the White House, right, whether you like this White House or like the old one or whatever one you like, when it comes out, half the country goes, ah, that's BS. You know, whatever they say, we say, that's BS. I don't believe that. But back then, when we had editors on things and we didn't just have Twitter accounts, that per, that perception was reality. So when FDR and Churchill meet and, and have their big summit in Casablanca in Morocco, every newspaper in the world shows them sitting together and shows the united front of the allies. And that perception is reality. We are a united front. We will have unconditional surrender from the from our enemies and you know the winner take all. Winner decides what the what you know what you don't get to negotiate your peace treaty. The winner decides. That was a huge moment in history. So part of it's that, but the bigger part of it was um, they couldn't actually agree on on basically to what becomes the invasion of Normandy. Stalin is the one who's asking for that for years. He's like, listen, I need you to invade continental Europe. He's getting decimated in the Soviet Union when the Nazis invade. He needs help. We're sending munitions. We're sending weapons. But we are not fighting there. We are, we are actually down south by Italy, and all of our fighting is happening there. And Stalin's like, come invade the east. Do what basically becomes the invasion of Normandy. But they couldn't get Churchill to agree to it. Churchill kept putting it off. Even FDR in the beginning put it off. He didn't think we had the weapons. He didn't think we had the men. We didn't think we had the organization. So getting everyone in that, in, in that one room was their way of trying to get everyone on the same page. It was the one thing they just really couldn't agree on. And the only way it was going to happen is is if FDR really helped it happen because FDR was in the middle because Churchill and Stalin hated each other, and FDR, you know, when you look, we've done a book as I said on Washington and Lincoln. Now here's FDR and Churchill. When you study what makes a great leader in history, you know, or even just what makes a great president, it's not who makes the best speeches, it's not who makes the biggest promises, it's who 
at a moment in time when a disaster happens can pivot and adapt and bring us together. And the one thing, you know, people will argue, I can't even believe it's controversial. People still think it's controversial, you know, FDR's progressive programs that he goes. But the one thing that everyone agrees on who studies World War II is that if FDR had one thing that he did right, it was managing all all those egos. Yet the thing he believed in more than anything was his own ability to charm everyone. And he charms Stalin because he's like, says to Churchill, you know, Stalin likes me way more than you, so I'm going to talk to him. And then he charms Churchill. Of course, they have a famous friendship. And that ability to charm and bring everyone together is really what makes so much of the end of the war happen. He's the right person in the right place at the right time. Well, I think you... And we all know the names Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin, whether you know a lot of them or not, and, you're, and you have them in the book that your main characters are your subtitle. But what I find that you do well, and I've watched conspiracy, I've done them all, is you bring out the, the, the people, the other people, the Scorzanis and, and, the, and the other ones that make this stuff for good or bad tick. How do you do that? Why do you do that? How do you piece those people together? Which ones are the important ones? All those questions. Yeah, I mean, listen, that, if you're talking about that's my favorite part of the book, right? My favorite part is not telling the story you've already heard, but showing you all the things you don't know about this moment in time. So you just mentioned my favorite character, you know, he's a horrible person, but an incredible person to watch is Otto Skorzeny, who's a Nazi, who in World War II is a special ops guy. And he gets a, you know, notified one day that he's summoned to come to Adolf Hitler's private headquarters called the Wolf Slayer. And if you're getting paged to go to the Wolf Slayer, you know, like, this is not a, you know, it's not a kid's birthday party there, right? Like, it's serious stuff. And he goes down to the Wolf Slayer, and what he realizes is that Adolf Hitler has invited all of his best special ops guys, and he wants to find who the best one is. And he lines them up in a room shoulder to shoulder, and he quizzes them with one key question. Adolf Hitler says, what do you think of Italy? And all of them start giving these kind of butt-kissing answers of like, oh, Italy's on our side in the war, and we're going to fight with them to the death forever. They're, they're, you know, we're unified. And Otto Skorzeny, this one Nazi, shouts above everybody else, I am from Austria, my Fuhrer. And it's a gamble by him because he knows Adolf Hitler's from Austria. And he also knows that a true Austrian forever resents Italy. Because back in the First World War, Italy took a key piece of Austria and never gave it back. And in that moment, Adolf Hitler turns to this Nazi, Otto Skorzeny, and he's like, you're my guy. You're my guy. And he sends Otto on a secret mission that is so crazy. I won't ruin it because it ruins a fun part of the book. You guys have both heard it. But that mission he goes on. When we knew, we were like, we, I didn't even know the story until we put it in yes, the book. Yes, me either. Let me interrupt. Yeah, I, I have a history degree and stuff. I had totally had forgotten or did not know that story. And, and it's such a crazy mission that Josh and I said, Josh Mench, my co-author, and I said to the editor, we need to put a photograph in the copy of the Nazi conspiracy because people will not believe this happened unless we show them physical proof that it happened. And you saw, we put, well, you can't see, if you, if you didn't do the audio book, like, right, like you, you'll see the actual picture of that moment. And it's bananas, and it's, you know, the, the wildest Nazi story you've never heard in your life, and you'll see why he gets the nickname the most dangerous man in Europe. Pretty incredible story, I'll tell you. It's, it's so, so interesting. How, how do we know uh, that the actual plot existed? And, and the other thing behind that is, what do you think the real reasoning of the Nazi plot was? Was it really to kill 
um, Stalin and, and FDR, stuff like that, or was it about the bugging of the room? First, you have to realize that assassination was just a real weapon in everyone's arsenal. So when after Pearl Harbor happened, the architect of Pearl Harbor for the Japanese was an admiral named Admiral Hirohodo, okay? Yamamoto, sorry, Admiral Yamamoto. And, and Admiral Yamamoto, eventually we tracked him down. United States tracked him down. They found what plane he was going to be on. They found this flight plan. They said to FDR, you want to kill him. This guy's responsible for Pearl Harbor. You want to take him out. And FDR thought about it and famously said, get Yamamoto. Of course he did. And, you know, we know the stories of Adolf Hitler. Everyone's heard those rumors and myths of like, you know, how we tried to kill him on a train. They tried to you know, get him in the Alps and put a bomb on there. And, you know, even even Churchill, there was a moment where they thought, the Nazis thought that, that Winston Churchill was on a commercial airliner. And they shot the airliner out of the sky, killing everyone on board. Um, and it wasn't Churchill. It was a guy who just looked like Churchill. Everyone died because he looked like Churchill. So assassination back then was a huge weapon of choice. So the big three being together is a tantalizing target for the Nazis. Now, the trick of the book, and you'll see when you read it, is obviously the plot gets thwarted. So we don't know what they were going to do, right? There's rumors that they're going to, you know, sneak in through the underground tunnels, and there's rumors that they're going to do it on Winston Churchill's birthday because that's when they would all be together. But, of course, it never happened, so we don't know. And the one thing you also find is that the people who crack the code are actually the Soviet Union. They're the ones who figure out that there are, there are people that are uh, – there to kind of kill FDR and Stalin and Churchill. But what you also find out, and again, I don't want to ruin this part, is they're also bugging FDR's room. So they've got microphones in the floor, microphones in the furniture, microphones in the carpet. And I can, I, I want, you'll see the whole analysis and why we believe what we believe. I don't want to ruin the whole book. But one of two things happen. Either one, there is this plot to kill FDR, Stalin, and Churchill, or... Joseph Stalin pulled one of the greatest scams in all of world history and fooled Winston Churchill and FDR and arguably single-handedly changed the course of World War II. Whatever side you pick, that is an incredible story worth telling. And you'll see all the evidence on both sides, and you'll see what we believe in there. But, you know, it, I was like, how do you not tell this story? Because, you know, and, and, and the question you have to be asking yourself now is, why don't you know this story, right? And the reason you don't know it because when FDR comes back from meeting in the big three, he comes back and he says, uh, he has a press conference at the White House and he says, yeah, the, the, the meeting went well. And by the way, the Nazis tried to kill us. And the phone starts ringing and the Secret Service is like, oh, my God, you shouldn't have said that. And everyone's like starting to write stories. But then guess what happens within that year? The invasion of Normandy happens, right? Thousands of men storming the beaches of Normandy. No, another 100,000 coming after that a million, like all, I mean, one of the greatest moments in, in American history is that invasion. And, and when, when Normandy happens, guess what? This story of the plot to kill the big three becomes a footnote. And it just gets lost because it's not the big story anymore. There's far bigger ones to tell. And so, you know, we, of course, I, I love the footnotes. So when I found this story, I was like, you know, we have, you have to tell it. And, and we tell it, uh, what I'm proud of is if you put, if you put FDR and Stalin and Churchill in the plot to kill them in the internet right now, you will find so much information about it, but so much of it is wrong. It's fact of all the things we've worked on, nothing has had more misinformation than this. And the reason is because of who's telling the story. 
because, you know, like you just said, tell us about what happened and whether the plot was real. Um, one of the things that really interestingly happens is after World War II, it's the, it's the Soviet Union that saves the day. But as the 60s come and as the Cold War hits full storm, guess what happens? America doesn't want to tell stories where the Russians are the good guys anymore. We don't tell that story anymore. So the story about this plot itself shifts. And it's fascinating to me to watch it. So history is not math. There's not just one answer. You know, history is based on lots of perspectives. And depending on whose perspective you pick, you get a different answer. And, and what I love about the Nazi conspiracy is you see everyone's point of view. Well, you kind of blew up my next question because I was going to and, – and, and, and you can reiterate it. I can move on. Is The last part, the last chapters are a discussion about historians and history. It's a, it's basically it's a fact or fiction, and that is really fascinating. And that's why you felt the need to add that to enhance the story, let everybody know. Yeah, I mean, for us, I think it was it was just about being completely, uh, you know, clear about. Uh, you know, I, I just really despise as someone who studied history, majored in history. I, I'm always like, there are people who good historians will go out there, you know, and say this is definitively what happened that day. And unless you have full proof, which rarely do you have, then you don't know what happened that day. Nobody knows what happened that day because everyone there was dead. And to me, when you have conflicting reports, I think it's important to say, here's what someone else says, though, and here's why they say it. So we are very open and transparent. I believe in full transparency. There are moments in the book, you'll, I'm sure you listened to, where you were like, where we say, we don't know. We don't know to this day how, uh, how or what day the Nazis figured out that Stalin and Churchill and Roosevelt were meeting. It's just gone. Nobody knows that piece of information. What we do know is that the most uh, highest level secret intelligence of the Nazis used to be written down in, in what they called brown sheets, given that nickname because they were truly printed on brown paper. And those brown sheets were, you know, they have big rules you have to like, you know, zip, put them in a special case. And after 30 days, you had to destroy them. It was like the Mission Impossible briefcase, but for Nazis. And we should never know any of those secrets. But the head of propaganda, Joseph Goebbels, for the Nazis, used to keep extensive diaries. And as a result, he used to write what he read about in the brown sheets in his diaries. It was a completely stupid move for him, great for us. So we get our hands on the diaries, and now we know what was in them. And the one thing that was shocking to me is, like you said before, you asked a question about, you know, why don't we just do things by cables? We all know the story of uh, the Enigma machine and how we cracked the Nazi codes and saved the day for the war. What I didn't know is they cracked our codes. They had actually cracked the, the international cables that Churchill and FDR were using to speak to each other. And they knew exactly what, what we were doing. And that was chilling to me. And so I love at the end of that book when we can say, here's what we knew, here's how we knew it, here's what we don't know, and here's what no one's going to know. And it's an imperfect puzzle, but, man, we got as many pieces as anyone has, and we're going to set the record straight. Well, I was wondering about national heroes like Charles Lindbergh and, and Henry Ford. How were they able to keep and maintain their popularity when the Nazis became who they were? Yeah, I, man, I wish I knew the answer to that question. It's disgusting, right? I mean – I think I think part of it is because they were controlling the you know uh, Henry Ford as he had his own newspaper you know he had his own way he didn't do everything out in the open like that but he had his own newspaper and he was rich and powerful and you know 
we all complain about Twitter today and we all complain about social media today. Um, but the good part is, is, you know, back then everyone had, you know, it was, it was controlled by a couple of gatekeepers and, and those who were really wealthy could buy silence of whole papers to keep things out. And the truth is, and I think it's just a hard truth is people didn't care. You know, people just didn't care that you hated the Jews. They just didn't. That's why you have the Bun Rally in Madison Square Garden. That's why you have what happened, you know, when you see Nazis marching in Illinois. Like, they just didn't care. There were just a lot of people who were anti-Semitic. Why, why was the whole country not up in arms over Kanye West? Some people were. Some people were like, whatever, that's him. He's being kooky. He's being crazy. Um, so you're asking me to explain human nature, especially when someone's, you know, like mean to someone else. I can tell you my answer is, you know, I, when we wrote this book, um, what is so vital to me is the American dream isn't for me is not about making money. It's about using your voice. And when you see someone being picked on and you see someone being bullied, you use your voice, you speak up and you say enough, enough. And that to me is why we study World War II. That's to me what the Nazi conspiracy is really about, is about showing you what happens when you don't say it. The reason I single, you know, we singled out Henry Ford and Charles Lindbergh is because we've kind of whitewashed them out of history. We just let them get away with it. We you know we go buy our Fords and everything's great. And, you know, and if, you know, we have all these great things and Henry Ford Museum is wonderful and has Rosa Parks' bus in Michigan. How about the fact that he's one of the biggest anti-Semites of all time? Why are we not talking about that? Like, you don't just get a, a, a pass because you did some good stuff, too. Like, and, and again, I'm not, I do not like cancel culture. I do not believe that, like, you know, you take everything down because of whatever. But I do believe, tell the story, man. And don't let them get away with it when you say something bad. Because that's what the past few years in the culture has done is everyone feels this, you know, like it's okay to say the horrible thing. It's not. And you've got to use your voice and say enough. So when someone picks up the book, takes it home and reads it, what is it you want them to take away from that book? You know, I, listen, of course we want them to be entertained and we want them to know, um, you know, here's what, you know, here's what happened and here's a story you never knew. But I, but I do, I mean, I don't want to repeat the answer, but I, I do think it's about, um, you know, telling people, here's how it happened before, don't let it happen again. Like, just don't. And, and that, to me, is the vital part. Um, and, and I think, again, I know, you know, there's a great quote that's always attributed to Mark Twain. Um, and it's, even though he truly, I, I, there's no proof he ever said it, but it says, history doesn't repeat, but it sure does rhyme. And, boy, do I love that, because history is rhyming right now. And, and, again, like you said, I mean, you know, we, we see what's happening in the news today. And these stories, you know, again, seem oddly familiar. You know, you, you, you're constantly seeing people saying those people are the cause of your problem. You know, it was, it's disgusting to me. It's disgusting to me when, when people do that. Um, and it, yet it still happens here in 2023. So what do I hope people really take away? Do I want them to be entertained? Sure. Do I want to learn some history? Sure. But I want them to learn to be a better human being to each other. Right? I want them to learn to speak up when they see someone you know, one of the things we also do is we do a line of kids' books, and and we the newest one is, is on John Lewis. And John Lewis uh, was, I, you know, I met him, and he's such a nice person, and he was a real supportive of ours. And John Lewis, you know, used to get spit on, and he used to get beaten up, and he used to get bloodied, and he'd still remain completely calm and peaceful. 
And the number one question people ask John Lewis is, how do you do that? How do you, how do you stay calm when people are treating you so poorly? And he said that the secret is his faith. But he used to describe faith as believing in something so deeply, you got to make a way out of no way. Man, I love that, making a way out of no way. So to me, you know, I can't give big speeches. I'm not a politician. I'm not a business person like that. Like, what I know how to do is tell stories. But I'm going to keep telling you stories that show you people making a way out of no way and hoping that eventually some people who are reading those stories learn it. The Nazi conspiracy, the secret plot to kill Roosevelt, Stalin, and Churchill is the book we're talking about. And our guest is the author, Brad Meltzer. Thank you for being here. No, I loved it. Really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.